Thanks to the wonderful folks at Anchor.fm. Welcome, listeners, to Tom Reads Your Story. Join voice actor Tom Zania as he reads from social media, news articles, his past audiobook recordings, and other spoken word projects, including those great writing projects that you send in. And now, here's your host, voice actor and podcaster, Tom Zania. And thank you very much once again, Mr. Announcer, for that lovely introduction. Welcome, you voice actors and writers of all kinds, audiobook listeners. We are celebrating the spoken word, and this is Tom Reads Your Story. Thanks for stopping by. I'm glad you're here. Today, more of the written comedy of Woody Allen. And I'll be right back after this. The 2014 E-Class. A car that can actually see like a human, using stereoscopic cameras, and even stop itself if it has to. The technology may be hard to imagine, but why you would want it is not. The 2014 E-Class. It doesn't just see the future, it is the future. Whether it's grilling, smoking, or baking, the Silverback Wood Pellet Grill delivers the delicious natural flavor of a wood-fired meal. Silverback boasts a 20-pound hopper and those all-day smokes, a high and low safety shutoff, and precision meat thermometer. Grilla Grills. More grill, less money. Find out more at grillagrills.com. Well, it's interesting. People tend to think that I'm neurotic, and this, I feel, is a testimony to my acting ability. Uh, over the years, I've played the neurotic, and I've played it so well, I think. It's, uh, I'm not a good actor, but that I can do. And I played that one little thing that I can do well that is a neurotic character so effectively that people tend to think I'm neurotic in my life, when in fact... The truth of the matter is, if you looked at my entire life, you'd find that I, I'm not really very neurotic. I'm very structured, normal. I have a wife now of 10 years. I have two kids that I devoted to. I have been very productive my whole life. I don't sit around brooding and contemplating suicide or getting high or, or dissipating myself. I've been a very disciplined worker. I have my jazz orchestra that I requires practice and discipline and I play with. I have my writing and I've been able to do all these things um, on an ongoing basis for years, and, and a neurotic personality would have trouble with that. So I think that, that, uh, that I'm, I'm not neurotic, that I'm very middle-class, uh, blue-collar, beer-drinking, television, T-shirt, jerk at home, uh, not someone who's ensconced in... Uh, uh, Kierkegaard or Spinoza, and, but my image is quite different because of what I've played. And of course, that was Woody Allen in a Time Magazine interview from some years back uh, that I have taken from YouTube, and I thank them for that. Very good interview, very short, but uh, I played about a, I don't know, two or three minute 
piece of it. And uh, anyway, what I want to do uh, today is play some pieces from the books that Woody Allen came out with back in the 60s that I read, believe it or not, when I was a kid. Um, he always struck me as so very funny because of the movies I saw of his, particularly Bananas and um, uh, what was the, what was the other one where he carves a bar of soap into a gun or something? It's some, it's a crazy. There, there's a couple of really crazy movies that really had me laughing, which in retrospect is funny because nowadays, I mean, in retrospect, I consider him a more intellectual comedian that. Um, I could never see a kid like myself, like I was, uh, really get anything from that. Um, nowadays, kids either watch Disney or they don't. And there's not much else out there as far as comedy. Um, I didn't get into the comedy of Mel Brooks until many years later. Um uh, but ironically, um, Woody actually worked on the same comedy team that Brooks and so many other uh, famous comedians from the 50s uh, worked on to, you know, to, to help Sid Caesar in his TV show. Um, but anyway, I did read, again, as a young boy, uh, books like Without Feathers, I read it as a paperback. I think I must have gone through that two or three times when I was a kid. And um, maybe a few others. What I'm going to read from is some stuff from... Hold on just a second. Let me see what... From the complete prose of Woody Allen, which is, of course, a compilation of all of his uh, great books that uh, many of you listeners have probably... Uh, heard or read and I think you'll really like it and why don't we get started right now from getting even by Woody Allen a look at organized crime it is no secret that organized crime in America takes in over 40 billion dollars a year this is quite a profitable sum especially when one considers that the mafia spends very little for office supplies Reliable sources indicate that the Cosa Nostra laid out no more than $6,000 last year for personalized stationery, and even less for staples. Furthermore, they have one secretary who does all the typing and only three small rooms for headquarters, which they share with the Fred Persky Dance Studio. Last year, organized crime was directly responsible for more than 100 murders and mafiosi participated indirectly in several hundred more, either by lending the killer's car fare or by holding their coats. Other illicit activities engaged in by Cosa Nostra members included gambling, narcotics, prostitution, hijacking, loan sharking, and the transportation of a large whitefish across state lines for immoral purposes. The tentacles of this corrupt empire even reach into the government itself. Only a few months ago, two ganglords under federal indictment 
spent the night at the White House, and the President slept on the sofa. The History of Organized Crime in the United States In 1921, Thomas the Butcher Covello and Ciro the Tailor Santucci attempted to organize disparate ethnic groups of the underworld and thus take over Chicago. This was foiled when Albert the logical pacifist Carrillo assassinated Kid Lipsky by locking him in a closet and sucking all the air out through a straw. Lipsky's brother Mendy, alias Mendy Lewis, alias Mendy Larson, alias Mendy Alias, avenged Lipsky's murder by abducting Santucci's brother Gatano, also known as Little Tony or Rabbi Henry Sharpstein, and returning him several weeks later in 27 separate mason jars. This signaled the beginning of a bloodbath. Dominic the herpetologist Mion shot Lucky Lorenzo, so nicknamed when a bomb that went off in his hat failed to kill him, outside a bar in Chicago. In return, Carrillo and his men traced Mion to Newark and made his head into a wind instrument. At this point, the Vitali gang, run by Giuseppe Vitali, real name Quincy Bedecker, made their move to take over all bootlegging in Harlem from Irish Larry Doyle, a racketeer so suspicious that he refused to let anybody in New York ever get behind him and walked down the street constantly pirouetting and spinning around. Doyle was killed when the Squilanti Construction Company decided to erect their new offices on the bridge of his nose. Doyle's lieutenant, Little Petey, Big Petey, Ross, now took command. He resisted the Vitali takeover and lured Vitali to an empty midtown garage on the pretext that a costume party was being held there. Unsuspecting, Vitali walked into the garage, dressed as a giant mouse, and was instantly riddled with machine-gun bullets. Out of loyalty to their slain chief, Vitali's men immediately defected to Ross. So did Vitali's fiancée, B. Moretti, a showgirl and star of the hit Broadway musical Sekarish, who wound up marrying Ross, although she later sued him for divorce charging that he once spread an unpleasant ointment on her. Fearing federal intervention, Vincent Colombraro, the buttered toast king, called for a truce. Colombraro had such tight control over all buttered toast moving in and out of New Jersey that one word from him could ruin breakfast for two-thirds of the nation. All members of the underworld were summoned to a dinner in Perth Amboy, where Colombraro told them, that internal warfare must stop, and that from then on, they had to dress decently and stop slinking around. Letters formerly signed with a black hand would in the future be signed best wishes, and all territory would be divided equally, with New Jersey going to Calambraro's mother. Thus, the mafia, or Cosa Nostra, literally my toothpaste or our toothpaste, was born. Two days later, Colombraro got into a nice hot tub to take a bath and has been missing for the past 46 years. Mob Structure The Cosa Nostra is structured like any government or large corporation, or group of gangsters for that matter. At the top is the Capo di Tutti Capi, or boss of all bosses. Meetings are held at his house, and he is responsible for supplying cold cuts and ice cubes. Failure to do so means instant death. Death, incidentally, is one of the worst things that can happen to a Cosa Nostra member, and many prefer simply to pay a fine. Under the boss of bosses are his lieutenants, 
each of whom runs one section of town with his family. Mafia families do not consist of a wife and children who always go to places like the circus or on picnics. They are actually groups of rather serious men whose main joy in life comes from seeing how long certain people can stay under the East River before they start gurgling. Initiation into the Mafia is quite complicated. A proposed member is blindfolded and led into a dark room. Pieces of Cranshaw melon are placed in his pockets, and he is required to hop around on one foot and cry out, Toodles! Toodles! Next, his lower lip is pulled out and snapped back by all the members of the board, or commission. Some may even wish to do it twice. Following this, some oats are put on his head. If he complains, he is disqualified. If, however, he says, Good, I like oats on my head, he is welcomed into the brotherhood. This is done by kissing him on the cheek and shaking his hand. From that moment on, he is not permitted to eat chutney, to amuse his friends by imitating a hen, or to kill anybody named Vito. Conclusions Organized crime is a blight on our nation. While many young Americans are lured into a career of crime by its promise of an easy life, most criminals actually must work long hours, frequently in buildings without air conditioning. Identifying criminals is up to each of us. Usually, they can be recognized by their large cufflinks and their failure to stop eating when the man sitting next to them is hit by a falling anvil. The best methods of combating organized crime are 1. Telling the criminals you are not at home. 2. Calling the police whenever an unusual number of men from the Sicilian Laundry Company begin singing in your foyer. 3. Wiretapping. Wiretapping cannot be employed indiscriminately, but its effectiveness is illustrated by this transcript of a conversation between two gang bosses in the New York area whose phones had been tapped by the FBI. Anthony and Rico are talking. Hello? Rico? Hello? Rico? Hello? Rico? I can't hear you. Is that you, Rico? I can't hear you. What? Can you hear me? Hello? Rico? We have a bad connection. Can you hear me? Hello? Rico? Hello? Operator, we have a bad connection. Hang up and dial again, sir. Hello? Because of this evidence, Anthony the Fish Rotuno and Rico Panzini were convicted and are currently serving 15 years in Sing Sing for illegal possession of Bensonhurst. From Side Effects by Woody Allen Nefarious Times We Live In Yes, I confess, it was I, Willard Pogrebin, mild-mannered and promising at one time in life, who fired a shot at the President of the United States. Fortunately, for all concerned, a member of the onlooking crowd jostled the luger in my hand, causing the bullet to ricochet off a McDonald's sign and lodge in some bratwurst at Himmelstein's Sausage Emporium. After a light scuffle in which several G-men laced my trachea into a reef knot, I was subdued 
and carted off for observation. How did it happen that I had come to this, you ask? Me, a character with no pronounced political convictions, whose childhood ambition was to play Mendelssohn on the cello or perhaps dance on point in the great capitals of the world? Well, it all began two years ago. I had just been medically discharged from the Army. The results of certain scientific experiments performed on me without my knowledge. More precisely, a group of us had been fed roast chicken stuffed with lysergic acid in a research program designed to determine the quantity of LSD a man can ingest before he attempts to fly over the World Trade Center. Developing secret weapons is of great importance to the Pentagon, and the previous week I had been shot with a dart whose drug tip caused me to look and talk exactly like Salvatore Dali. Cumulative side effects took their toll on my perception, and when I could no longer tell the difference between my brother Morris and two soft-boiled eggs, I was discharged. Electroshock therapy at the Veterans Hospital helped, although wires got crossed with a behavioral psychology lab, and I, along with several chimpanzees, all performed the cherry orchard together in perfect English. Broke and alone upon my release, I recall hitchhiking west and being picked up by two native Californians, a charismatic young man with a beard like Rasputin's and a charismatic young woman with a beard like Svengali's. I was exactly what they were looking for, they explained, as they were in the process of transcribing the Kabbalah on parchment and had run out of blood. I tried to explain that I was en route to Hollywood seeking honest employment, but the combination of their hypnotic eyes and a knife the size of a sculling oar convinced me of their sincerity. I recall being driven to a deserted ranch where several mesmerized young women force-fed me organic health foods and then tried to emboss the sign of the pentagram on my forehead with a soldering iron. I then witnessed a black mass in which hooded adolescent acolytes chanted the words, Oh, wow, in Latin. I also recall being made to take peyote and cocaine and eat a white substance that came from boiled cactus, which caused my head to revolve completely around like a radar dish. Further details escaped me, although my mind was clearly affected as two months later I was arrested in Beverly Hills for trying to marry an oyster. Upon my release from police custody, I longed for some inner peace in an attempt to preserve what remained of my precarious sanity. More than once, I had been solicited by ardent proselytizers on the street to seek religious salvation with the Reverend Chow Bak Ding, a moon-faced charismatic who combined the teachings of Lao Tse with the wisdom of Robert Vesco. An aesthetic man who renounced all worldly possessions in excess of those owned by Charles Foster Kane, the Reverend Ding explained his two modest goals. One was to instill in all his followers the values of prayer, fasting, and brotherhood, and the other was to lead them in a religious war against the NATO countries. After attending several sermons, I noticed that Reverend Ding thrived on robot-like fealty, and any 
diminution of divine fervor met with raised eyebrows. When I mentioned that it seemed to me the reverend's followers were being systematically turned into mindless zombies by a fraudulent megalomaniac, it was taken as criticism. Moments later, I was led swiftly by my lower lip into a devotional shrine where certain minions of the reverend who resembled sumo wrestlers suggested I rethink my position for a few weeks with no petty distractions like food or water. To further underscore the general sense of disappointment with my attitude, a fistful of quarters was applied to my gums with pneumatic regularity. Ironically, the only thing that kept me from going insane was the constant repeating of my private mantra, which was, Yoikes! Finally, I succumbed to the terror and began to hallucinate. I recall seeing Frankenstein stroll through Covent Gardens with a hamburger on skis. Four weeks later, I awoke in a hospital reasonably okay, except for a few bruises and the firm conviction that I was Igor Stravinsky. I learned the Reverend Ding had been sued by a 15-year-old Maharishi over the question of which of them was actually God and therefore entitled to free passes to Lowe's Orpheum. The issue was finally resolved with the help of the Bunko Squad and both gurus were apprehended as they tried to beat it across the border to Nirvana, Mexico. By this time, although physically intact, I had developed the emotional stability of Caligula and hoping to rebuild my shattered psyche I volunteered for a program called PET, Perlmutter's Ego Therapy, named after its charismatic founder, Gustav Perlmutter. Perlmutter had been a former bop saxophonist and had come to psychotherapy late in life, but his method had attracted many famous film stars who swore that it changed them much more rapidly and in a deeper way than even the astrology column in Cosmopolitan. A group of neurotics, most of whom had struck out with more conventional treatment, were driven to a pleasant rural spa. I suppose I should have suspected something from the barbed wire and the Dobermans, but Perlmutter's underlings assured us that the screaming we heard was purely primal. Forced to sit upright in hardback chairs with no relief for 72 straight hours, our resistance gradually crumpled and it was not long before Perlmutter was reading us passages from Mein Kampf. As time passed, it was clear that he was a total psychotic, whose therapy consisted of sporadic admonitions to cheer up. Several of the more disillusioned ones tried to leave, but to their chagrin found the surrounding fences electrified. Although Perlmutter insisted he was a doctor of the mind, I noticed he kept receiving phone calls from Yasser Arafat, and were it not for a last-minute raid on the premises by agents of Simon Wiesenthal, there is no telling what might have happened. Tense and understandably cynical by the turn of events, I took up residence in San Francisco, earning money in the only way I now could, by agitating at Berkeley and informing for the FBI. For several months, I sold and resold bits of information to federal agents, mostly concerning a CIA plan 
to test the resiliency of New York City residents by dropping potassium cyanide in the reservoir. Between this and an offer to be dialogue coach on a snuff porn movie, I could just make ends meet. Then, one evening, as I opened my door to put out the garbage, two men leaped stealthily from the shadows and draping a furniture pad over my head, hustled me off in the trunk of a car. I remember being jabbed with a needle, and before I blacked out, hearing voices comment that I seemed heavier than Patty, but lighter than Hoffa. I awakened to find myself in a dark closet, where I was forced to undergo total sensory deprivation for three weeks. Following that, I was tickled by experts, and two men sang country and western music to me until I agreed to do anything they wanted. I cannot vouch for what ensued, as it is possible that it was all a result of my brainwashing. But I was then brought into a room where President Gerald Ford shook my hand and asked me if I would follow him around the country and take a shot at him now and then, being careful to miss. He said it would give him a chance to act bravely and could serve as a distraction from genuine issues, which he felt unequipped to deal with. In my weakened condition, I agreed to anything. Two days later, the incident at Himmelstein's Sausage Emporium occurred. And that, that, of course, was from Side Effects, uh, from a very good collection of Woody Allen stories, a lot of which I've just remembered by looking, a lot of which are plays, uh, very short plays, of course, but uh, ones that I'm going to go back to and hopefully read for you uh, on the podcast. There's a lot of material uh, that you can read from Woody Allen. Uh, obviously, he's a great writer and a, one of America's great humorists. And that should do it for this episode. If you enjoyed today's show, please tell your friends and have them tell their friends. Be sure to email me at TomReadYourStory at Yahoo.com to send in your book, article, or poetry for me to read on the podcast. Or if you have questions about the show. As always, thanks to Anchor.fm for the chance to have an ongoing podcast. I very much appreciate it. Hope you and your friends come back real soon. Have a great day. Stay safe and take care. For more information on Tom's availability for your e-learning, commercial, audiobook, or video project, visit his website at www.tomzvoices.weebly.com. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Tom Reads Your Story.